let's just lay the ground here and talk about um, what kind of environment you grew up in, what uh, tradition and what denomination of Christianity. And uh, like, at what age did you start becoming a practicing Christian? Um, has this been going on in your family for a long time or did they convert later? And then I guess we can just build up to, to your traumatic experiences and what you, what you learned and certain toxic beliefs that you had and how they shaped your worldview. And then we'll of course get to you leaving the faith and what that was like. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, I was born into a Christian family. So I, I never, uh, it wasn't accepting Jesus into my heart. wasn't really something that I did. Um, it was just something that always existed for me. Uh, my parents, by the time I was born, um, they were involved in Pentecostal leaning churches, uh, mostly non-denominational. Uh, when I was growing up, there was a heavy emphasis on the fact that we were not religious. We were non-denominational Christians. Um, to be part of a denomination, like say to be Presbyterian or Episcopalian or Catholic, um, to our circles, that would be to be religious. And that was always expressed as though it was a bad thing. Like that meant that you were uh, you were more bound to like legalism and um, more fundamentalist interpretations of the Bible, perhaps, or more liturgical uh, patterns of faith. Whereas the type of Christianity that we practiced, um, like I said, it was non-denominational, but it had its roots heavily in Pentecostalism, which for anyone who doesn't know, very much emphasizes the works of the Holy Spirit and the leadings of the Holy Spirit. And so what this what this looked like was a uh, a lot of um, sorry, I'm just turning off my notifications right now. Uh, what this looked like was a lot of very ruckus worship services that could go on for hours where people would pray in tongues and have visions and claim to be miraculously healed of illnesses and ailments, both physical and psychological. Um, and there would usually be dancing and weeping and laughing hysterically and sobbing for hours. It was a very, um, the I, one of the terms for it is charismatic Christianity. But again, because we were so adamantly non-denominational, even that wasn't really a descriptor that I heard often growing up. Um, it's only been after I left my faith as an adult that I've realized um, the mainstream media would call us evangelical and the Christian media would call us charismatic. Uh, so that kind of, hopefully that kind of paints like a broad picture of um, the type of holy roller style tent revival Esque Christianity that I grew up in. It was a very personal, um, we were, we were, it was a very personal expression of faith where we believed that we could have a direct connection to God and that we didn't need a priest or a pastor in order to have that type of connection with God. Uh, Jesus was a very, it was, it was a relationship, not a religion is uh, a common saying, you know, like the, the relationship between you and Jesus Christ was, and the Holy Spirit and God, the, the Trinity as it were. Um, that was the most heavily emphasized part. Within that, though, um, there were a lot of other elements that uh, I can reflect on now and be like, oh, that's a very particular brand of Christian. Like, for instance, we were, as much as we emphasized the works of the Holy Spirit, we also emphasized spiritual warfare, which, again, for anyone who doesn't know, is kind of based on the belief that there's an ultimate battle between good and evil going on between God and Satan. And as Christians, we needed to be fighting on God's side and 
exercising spiritual warfare in the form of um, it, here's where it got political, especially in my teen years to to wield to wage war spiritually and oppose Satan and his evil forces would be to uh, oppose abortion. It would be to oppose gay marriage. These things were looked at as Satan um, destroying America as a Christian nation. And so we needed to um, embody and live out and walk our faith in ways that uh, today I find very intolerant and very hateful um, and not promoting free will or bodily autonomy. Um, so uh, anyway, that's that was another heavy component of my upbringing. There was like the charismatic Pentecostalism, Holy Spirit, mystical experience stuff. Then there was the spiritual warfare stuff as I got older, and that leaned more political. And lastly, the other third component of my upbringing, um, and then I'll let you hop in here, Rav, to ask any questions. But the, the other third component of my upbringing was purity culture. Um, again, for anyone who doesn't know, the evangelical Christian purity culture of my upbringing not only stressed not having sex until marriage, and of course, heterosexual marriage between one man and one woman. Um, it was a lot more encompassing than just that. It was you don't date. Uh, we we practiced what we called courtship instead, um, and where basically God led our love lives through the direction that He gave our parents and other spiritual elders. Um, and and it, like I I felt like I was cheating on my future husband if I even had a crush on someone else. And the whole point of purity culture was that you'd know who your future husband or wife was because God would tell you and tell them and tell these other spiritual mentors in your life. Um, because a lot of people ask like, well, if you don't date, how do you know who you're supposed to marry? That's how God, God tells people. And that, uh, this upbringing in purity culture, uh, along with dressing modestly, of course, as, as a female, um, is ultimately what led to my deconversion later on. It had to do with purity culture. And we can get to that later, but now I'll pause and, <laughs> and see if you have any questions here. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the, there's a lot there. And I think one important point to make here is the, the, the separation between what actually the Bible says or what you think it says versus the, the other cultural baggage that's attached to it or also the interpretations of it. So your interpretation and what you grew up with in your family might be very different from obviously needless to say from what another family grew up with and a oh, lot of this other sure. a lot a lot of this other stuff like the purity culture thing like that's not anything i've heard of uh within christian groups here in my area in fact I, i've heard more of that thing in eastern religions um I, i've heard more of that uh, especially in india where things are a little different Mm -hmm. um, but within Hinduism and Sikhism, those kind of ideas, uh, I, I've not heard of those as much within Christianity. So then, you know, that's, you know, those are some confounding variables of what the Bible says. And, and, you know, is your issue with the Bible and with fundamentally some of the core ideas of it or the added cultural baggage and the other uh, norms, rules and rituals that mm -hmm. your family adopted that, that many other Christians don't have? 
So I think, well, first of all, to your point, yes, religious purity culture exists in many other religions. It exists in Islam. It exists in Judaism. It exists in Hinduism, as you say. It exists um, even in Buddhism. I've met celibate Buddhist monks. One could argue that that's a, an expression of a form of purity culture. Mormonism, you know, Scientology. There's there's um, different, what what perhaps a loose definition moving forward um, would be religious purity culture may have a spectrum of what it deems acceptable and not acceptable, but ultimately it's about controlling your body and controlling your sexual agency and your sexual expression. So again, there's going to be varying degrees of what that looks like within each religious group, within each denomination of of that religion, and within each family and individual. So I do think that there's a a broad spectrum of it. Um, I would also say that... uh, while definitely there's many ways to interpret Bible verses, um, there, I, I think that I always interpreted things a little bit more literally, even more so than some of my other family members and some of my other um, fellow youth group goers and things like that or pastors. Um, but I also, uh, so point is there is a there's always going to be a biblical basis for the type of purity culture that I grew up in. Like there are Bible verses that dem- that say that women should dress modestly. And there are Bible verses that say that if a man even looks at a woman with lust in his eyes, he's committed adultery with her in his heart and he should gouge out his eyes if they cause him to sin and cut off his hand if it causes him to sin. That's often interpreted as like, oh, if you masturbate because a woman caused you to lust, you deserve to chop off that hand. And a lot of people go, oh, Jesus was speaking metaphorically, of course, there. Okay, well, how do we know he was? How do we know he wasn't? You know, like, I think um, I, I personally find it a giant waste of time to debate whether what, what a verse truly means or not, because the authors aren't alive anymore to actually explain for themselves what it really means. So I'm more interested today in how these verses are interpreted. Um, by different groups. And yes, absolutely different groups will interpret these things differently. Um, The churches that I went to interpreted verses uh, in the books written by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, things like women should learn quietly and in full submission. Um, Women should dress modestly. You know, what's modest? There's that that's open to interpretation. Like, uh, is it modest to wear a tank top? Is it modest to wear makeup? Um, these these are the nuances within interpretation that I that I that uh, vary across different groups, obviously. Um, so I do think that it's both. To answer your question, it is both biblically based on scriptural texts and culturally based. Um, and my family moved around the United States and even Canada too quite a bit. Um, so it's not like I grew up in any one area or within one church group or even one denomination. You know, I had a pretty broad, uh, North American upbringing and, um, what all of the churches my family went to had in common, um, purity culture was in all of them. And it's surprising to me that you haven't come across it where you're at and in a good way though, because I don't think purity culture is healthy. And I'm really glad that it's, that there's a lot more exposure about a lot of its harms. But in my opinion, I got off pretty easy from it. So, um, so we can jump to, jump to this now. Uh, I, the reason I left my faith ultimately came because when I was 17 years old, thanks to purity culture, I was betrothed to a guy from my youth group who I didn't love. We'd never dated, but God told him 
God told my the, the guy's dad and God told my dad uh, that he and I were supposed to be married. And so we were engaged. And um, this is, you know, perhaps a more it's I wouldn't say it's a common experience in American Christianity for underage uh, kids to find themselves facing um, divinely arranged marriages, let's say. But it is not as my, my situation is far from unique. There's uh, th there's so many other people who've who've gone through what I've gone through with this. And that's where it does become. Um, really harmful. Uh, and that's, like I said, that's ultimately what really shook my faith. Um, because the promise of purity culture is that if you are faithful to your future spouse and you do honor God in all of these ways, he's going to bless you with this incredible romantic love story, this, uh, this amazing marriage and a great sex life. Um, and I held up my end of the bargain and I had never even held hands with a boy or kissed a boy. And here I was suddenly engaged to a guy that I felt not even a little bit of attraction toward. And I felt so deeply betrayed, um, mainly by God, because it was like, God, I held up my end of the bargain. I did all the things. I obeyed you. Um, and you promised that you were going to give me this epic love story. And I feel like I'm dying. Like, I feel like I've just, I feel like I've just been locked into a coffin for the rest of my life. Um, that's really how it felt. And that really shook my faith. I was still a Christian. Again, that was when I was 17. I was still a Christian for uh, a few years after that. Um, it, I was 21 when I left my faith completely. Uh, but yeah, like that was really the turning point. And that, you know, I could go on and on about uh, why I think purity culture is uh, deeply harmful. That's like the pinnacle of my experience, but there's so much else that goes into it and so many other people who have gone through far worse. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah that sounds like a horrible experience to be put in that situation. First of all, <laughs> that's, just my initial, <laughs> that's, that's my initial response. Um, and, and I have many like peripheral questions about like what, how did God speak to this person, this guy, and to these other family members? Is that right. could there be could there be any kind of fabrication or exaggeration? What does that look like? There are a million questions I have about that. But uh, like I was saying earlier, it's you know, could you have left that particular belief system? Could you have left that really toxic, old school uh, form of purity culture that, as you acknowledge, uh, is is rare or not? commonly found within American Christianity, could you have left that strand of belief and still have stayed a Christian? Or, or, or do you think that's more of a foundational thing? Like, like, I know there are many other factors, but, you know, like, like, that being a reason for leaving Christianity, uh, as of right now, because we're still like, unpacking these things, mm -hmm. like, like, that in itself wouldn't make sense, because, because many Christians don't believe that. So you could theoretically discard this toxic purity culture where people can just say that God says that I'm going to marry Alice Gretchen. So, uh, Alice, you should do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, you, you can just get rid of those beliefs and still be a Christian. Right. Totally. Oh yeah. I have friends who, that, that's exactly what I did, honestly. Um, so at 17, when I, I, I did end up breaking off my betrothal and it was the scariest thing I'd ever done because um, and again, it's really hard to, to articulate in, in a way, uh, to people who did not grow up within this belief system, but I really believed that by breaking off my betrothal, I was disobeying God and therefore giving Satan 
basically telling Satan, you can have me because I'm choosing to disobey God. I am leaving the umbrella of his protection and his angels are no longer able to help me and save me because I've used the free will that God gave me to walk away from the very clear path he's laid out. That was my indoctrination. Um, I was homeschooled my entire life. And so I was, I had an extra insular upbringing within the belief system that I grew up in. So, uh, it was, it was all I knew. So when I broke off my betrothal, um, I still desperately needed to be a Christian because I couldn't fathom what the meaning of life was without God. I couldn't fathom what the point of existence was without God or how existence even came to be. I couldn't imagine uh, I, I was so scared of hell um, because I grew up believing that if you reject God and Jesus as your savior, then you, you, you go to hell. And there's, again, scriptural context for that. And, you know, a lot of Christians debate that and they're like, oh, no, that's allegorical. I really don't give a fuck if people think it's allegorical um, when many denominations and many children are brainwashed into taking this at face value. Um, again, mm. it doesn't matter to me about the source or what anyone else thinks it meant. It matters to me how it's practiced in individual lives. So, uh, so with that said, I, I was what I would now call a, a progressive Christian. And I have many friends who are progressive Christians. Like they are yep. still Christians who fully reject purity culture, who are very LGBTQ affirming, who are, who don't believe in hell. And sometimes it boggles my mind because I'm like, well, the basis of Christianity as <laughs> I always understood it was you accept Jesus as your Lord and savior. Um, implying that, yeah, you need saving, first of all, and that you need saving from someone or somewhere. Um, I grew up believing it was Satan or hell. And so I think that uh, because I was so terrified of going to hell, um, I really desperately tried to find a version of Christianity that would allow me to um, see God as love. Because that was the greatest mind fuck of it all, was being told that God is love and loves us unconditionally, but and that he loves us so much he gives us free will. But then when your option is like, God loves you to use your free will to go to hell if you want. He loves you enough to have that be your choice. He doesn't want mannequins. <laughs> he wants living, breathing people. You know, he's not going to make you do anything. Oh, but yeah, if you do, if you, if you disobey him, he will allow consequences because he loves you that much to let you exercise that freedom. <laughs> I mean, come on, <laughs> come on. So that's, uh, yeah, I, I did, I did venture into progressive Christianity for, for a while. You know, I, I explored different churches here in Los Angeles. I stopped going to church altogether and really just tried to have it be my own sort of meditative practice. I, every time I would go on hikes every single day, cause I lived right by Runyon Canyon mm. and, uh, I would, I would make it a meditative prayer walk basically, um, and chant certain Bible verses or just pray in the quiet of my heart and like really try to connect with God. But ultimately, Rav, um, mm. God, I never experienced God uh, ever. God never spoke to me. Meanwhile, he's speaking all these things to all these other people, but I never experienced uh, what I would call God. Anything that I ever thought might be God talking to me had so many other alternative explanations um, like if I felt like, oh, God's moving me to give money to this homeless person. It's like, okay, I could call that God or I could just call that human empathy. 
that's what I call human empathy now. Um, being able to have compassion for people. And neurologically, we have mirror neurons in our brains that see pain and suffering in other people that make us feel pain and suffering. And so um, anything that I once thought could have been God, maybe hopefully talking to me, there were just always other explanations for that I, I found then and find now far more compelling. But that's not to take away from other people's experiences because mm -hmm. I think that other people are capable, and we can get into this more if you want, are capable of having mystical experiences that some people like myself just are not capable of um, in a soberly induced sense. Now we can get into psychedelics. Uh, we've talked at length about that. <laughs> and like, I have my experiences there. We have. I'm happy to delve in terms of a spiritual, soberly induced mystical experience, like the kind some people get to through chanting, dancing, praying, meditating, that's never happened for me. And there's uh, biological reasons that I've personally found that suggest maybe why that is, not just for me, but other people wired like me with my with a similar genetic inheritance. And uh, so for people who are capable of having a soberly induced spiritual mystical experience, absolutely, that's real to you. Of course, you're going to believe in whatever uh, deity or deities or universe or whatever thing, being, entity, you you think that that is. Um, and I'm not ever trying to take away those experiences from people. I'm simply saying that contrary to Christian belief and many other beliefs, they are not accessible to all. Not everyone can have that and it does not make them a sinner. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, th there's a lot there again. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of <laughs> questions I have. A, a lot of things I want to ask about and, and talk about. I mean, the, the, there's definitely a lot to talk about with regards to the universality of mystical experience. Yeah. And I mean, f f from the perspective of other faiths like Buddhism and Hinduism um, or, you know, new age spirituality or, or other perspectives, that there is something universal about it that it's not dependent on you believing something. But it is not necessarily the Christian belief, yeah. Um, or, or at least in the Christian belief, if if you you have some kind of deep mystical experience, you know, perhaps perhaps that is God trying to talk to you, and you're not willing to receive it, or perhaps some other spirit, and there is that uh, Christian aversion or disinclination towards psychedelics for fear of encountering yeah. demons or other spirits, which I think is kind of preposterous. <laughs> so, so, so there is that belief. Um, and, you, you know, what do we exactly mean by God? Well, what is experiencing God? You said you've never experienced God. You know, if, if you were to perhaps talk to a, a Hindu guru, if you were to perhaps talk to Sadhguru, he might say you already have experienced God and you don't know it. <laughs> what does that, yeah. what does that mean? Like what, you know, the, in the Eastern perspective, God is, the the unitary substance of the world you know god is god is the universe and so in some sense everything is god but but you know something that's ultimately true doesn't mean that you can physically or materially experience it so then in, in the hindu and in the buddhist context it's about recognizing the the freedom of pure consciousness that, that's sam harris's language which is just a universal idea about mm -hmm. the, um, the the you know whatever word you want to use the, the cosmic beauty of the universe if you want to use that and not say god that that's available to you um whenever and you know that is god from the hindu perspective and that's available through meditation mindfulness it can be you know 
you could, you could be going out for walks in nature and you could be stunned by the the underlying unity of, of the nature surrounding you and you can look at the sky and feel deep wonder and awe towards it and by somebody's definition that would be an experience of god yeah so, so like so like when you say i've never experienced god you know under the christian rubric perhaps but from other perspectives that maybe you you exactly have and so but that, totally. begs, that that begs the question what is the definition of god and why why is the christian definition authoritative and the others aren't Oh, I don't think it should be authoritative. I think um, for me, uh, I don't use the word God just because of the associations it has to me personally, just because of my own personal upbringing. But absolutely, by by another person's definition of God, not only have I experienced God, I am God. (laughs) Um, I can't deny my own existence. So how could I deny the existence of God if someone would define... Alice, you're a God today. Thank you. you I'll take it. (laughs) This is a party today. Alice Gretchen is a god today. (laughs) I'll take it. Welcome to Hinduism 101. I like it. I like it. Um, I think that uh, I think that for me, I am able to experience feelings of transcendence and awe and gratitude um, through by by uh, translating what people what I think people mean when they use the word God in a positive sense into my own verbiage that doesn't feel so loaded to me and doesn't come tinged with the baggage that I have. But absolutely, like I can I can experience what someone else might call God. Um, and if they want to call that God, like I have zero problem with that, as long as they're not trying to make me call it God and force me into their uh, their verbiage, because it's like, no, that verbiage is just unhelpful to me. And if the goal is to experience love, compassion, transcendence, acceptance, peace, awe, then I'm going to, I should be encouraged to me. The loving thing to do would be encouraged to find these things and experiencing, experience these things through my own means. Um, So to me, that is what love would do. Love would first accept and love uh, doesn't try to force someone into changing a mind. It doesn't try to force someone or pressure someone into adopting a, an ideology or a verbiage or a certain path. Um, you know, like I, like if someone was trying to insist, like, but that is God. It's like, okay, to you, what makes your idea of God any more true mm. than mine used to be? You know, because it is, because everything is, that, it, that it, you know, the universe, it's God. It's like, <laughs> okay, well, you can keep calling it that if you want. I'd rather just call it the universe. <laughs> That's fine. Why yeah. can't we do that? Yeah. Yeah, and, and to some degree, I think we're playing a really stupid semantic game when we get into those debates. It's, okay. like, it, it, it's very explicit within the Hindu literature as well, um, and in the Buddhist literature. And, and also, I, I want to get to Orthodox Christianity in a second, because there's some deeper nuances there that I think mm-hmm. you might appreciate. But within the uh, the contemplative Hindu literature, specifically the non-dual Hindu texts, it explicitly says, like, get out of this conceptual thinking, debating mode of like naming things. This is God. This is not, this is X. This is Y. like, call it whatever you want. Call it Santa Claus, call it, you know, whatever. If, 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 if what we're getting at is something universal um, Mm -hmm. and it's an experience and it's something bigger than ourselves, that is ultimately a mystery that transcends any form of human language we can use. It doesn't matter if we call it X, Y, or Z to some extent. Now, now, Mm -hmm. of course, of course that isn't, you know, there's a danger of, 
you know, becoming so universal that it's, you don't really know what you're talking about anymore, but from the ultimate, the ultimate universal, from the universe's perspective, it's, it, it doesn't matter what you call it. So you, you know, like, like God, uh, you know, in the Hindu context, the word they use is Brahmin. Mm-hmm. Brahmin does not mean God in any, in, in most Western evangelical traditions, Brahmin is not God. They're, they're different things, but in an orthodox mm-hmm. setting, there might be more similarities with that. So, so you could call it Brahmin. Somebody could call it, you know, I could call it God and I could mean Brahmin, but my Christian friend could, you know, talk about God and he could mean something totally else. But mm-hmm. perhaps is there something universal to that that defies this rational explanation and using our limited human language tools that really in the end you're you know you're um, you know you're trying to explain something that just can't be explained. You're just using the wrong tools for the job. Yeah, it's, it's like it's like you're you know um, you're you're trying to smell music. It's like wrong tool, wrong sense. <laughs> you mm. can, <laughs> You know, you're, you're, you're trying to get at something that you're just not, you know, able to ultimately, yeah. you can try and there's value in having definitions and setting parameters. Yeah. What is the ultimate is ultimately the ultimate. <laughs> and yeah. That is the, you know, that's how Hindus look at it. That's how Buddhists look at it. And that's how Orthodox Christians look at it as well. Yeah, no, I think I absolutely agree that we, I mean, we don't know what we don't know about. And if we don't have the biological capacity to um, perceive things in a way and we don't have the tools to measure them, then I'm perfectly, I'm perfectly happy to accept that there's just a lot that we're never going to know about. Um, For me personally, um, atheism, which I always mean very literally, like A without theism, belief in gods or deities um, in a, in a traditional sense of like, uh, like figureheads or entities or souls like for me not believing in in something allows me to wonder and explore everything and i understand that that's my own personal mm. interpretation and and practice of what this word atheist means to me it means that i am free completely to be curious perennially to explore to my mind and heart's content without being hung up on what to me is often an antiquated belief system that could inhibit me from exploring wonder to its full potential. Because if I accept, let's take, for instance, a near-death experience. If I accept at face value that that's a soul having a journey to an afterlife before it comes back to the body, uh, for me, that's kind of, that, that feels limiting. I find it far more exciting to wonder, like, whoa, like what actually could this be? Will we ever be able to understand? Where is that? Does that literally mean an afterlife? Is there really a soul or is there just a hell of a lot more we get to learn about consciousness that it's probably not going to happen in my lifetime? Why would it? (laughs) Um, But I think that having a more non-theistic, non-belief stance for me feels incredibly liberating. And I understand why to many Mm. other people it feel very narrow It's like, why would you shut yourself off from the spirit world and the spirit realm and all these other places? And it's like, well, because I don't, though. To me, what some might call the spirit realm, I'm I'm quite happy using the word consciousness. Like, I translate that as consciousness. And the question of, like, does our soul live beyond the body, to me, becomes 
is consciousness limited to the the to the aliveness of the human brain? And that's a question that I'm endlessly mm. fascinated by. Um, and atheism for me allows me to explore that in a wondrous, joyful, from a wondrous, joyful place far more than any spiritual path that I've ever come across. Um, mm. I don't very much value storytelling. So the mythology and fiction and folklore <laughs> often found in religion holds very little appeal to me. It's like, I'm, I'm more interested in, uh, in uh, biology and in neuroscience and in physics and astrophysics. We should get Jordan but... Peterson. We should get Jordan Peterson here. <laughs> Oh, please join us, Mr. Peterson. <laughs> Dr. Jordan, Peterson. I'll, I'll text yeah. him right now. Jordan, join us. Alice is a good friend. <laughs> well, you, you, were at, you were at one of Jordan's events recently, right? Which we I never was. talked about. I was curious about that. Oh, we yeah. We can talk about that at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm totally down. Um, no, I, I admire many things about Jordan Peterson, uh, mainly the way he thinks. I really appreciate the way his brain works and how he thinks about things. I will say our biggest difference well, one of our biggest differences is he very much values storytelling and mythology and allegory. And his relationship to the Bible is, you know, it's it's so interesting to me to hear him talk about the Bible because we view it very differently. Um, but again, you know, I have very little patience for fiction. <laughs> I'd much rather people just say what they mean and mean what they say. And actually, I think Jesus said that too. Uh, let your yes be a yes and your no be a no. Um, but again, that's partly what made Christianity so confusing for me was Jesus seemed to say, like, say what you mean and mean what you say. But then he's telling us to chop off our hands and he's speaking in metaphors and parables all over the place. And he's saying, oh, you know, you, you should figure it out. The Holy Spirit will lead you. And it's like, well, what if you can't? I don't know. I, I just don't have patience for that. I really don't appreciate mythology and parable and folklore. So um, mm. I'm much more interested in nonfiction and the sciences. <laughs> mm. That makes me feel happiness and love and peace and awe. I don't find it through fiction. Uh-huh. Well, what about Harry Potter? Or, or <laughs> no, Wars? I find entertainment, but I don't find awe or peace. Sure, there's some stories that I can, like, I love immersing myself in stories, but I read nonfiction. I tend to watch documentaries more than fiction. Um, I do too, actually, series. to be completely honest. I've actually not read a lot of fictional novels. It's something I need to do a better job of doing. It's just limited time. And, yeah. Well, I, I guess, I guess, I mean, if you want to talk about, I, I'm reading the Bible more than I ever have before. And and more and more so than anything, reading a lot of the Hindu texts and Buddhist texts. So yeah. th that, that, that is very interesting to me. Yeah, I've definitely enjoyed dabbling every now and then. Like I've read uh, after I uh, left evangelical Christianity, but still consider myself a Christian. I explored a lot of other faiths and practices. And um, the one that spoke to me most was Taoism, actually. Uh, mm. And yeah, I really liked Taoism. I really liked how it seemed to be more of a, um, I mean, people always say this, it sounds so cliche to say, but they're like, oh, it's more of a philosophy, less of like a religion. But it was for me, I, I found value in that to an extent. And after a while, I was like, okay, this just sounds like more confusing parables where I'm supposed to figure out the moral of the story. And I'd rather someone just tell me the fucking moral of the story. Why do I have to figure it out? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Taoism is on my list to explore. Because Alan Watts was a big fan of Taoism, and I want to get into that at some point. But 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 also like you know you're describing yourself as atheist, and again we've already laid out the varying, perplexing definitions of God, and somebody's God could be different than your God, and mm -hmm. um, you know from what you've described, you know I I might be able to say that you fit perfectly within the Advaita Vedanta of the Hindu tradition, which is all mm. about not non-belief; it's about direct experience of. And, you know, they don't say God, they say Brahman, the universe, 
that ex it explicitly says in the scripture of the, the Advaita Vedanta, which is so fascinating. It says, what are you going to do by reading all these scriptures? Like go out and go see it yourself. Yes. Live life. Stop thinking go, about go it, pondering it, it, meditating it. Just fucking live. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but of course the paradox is like, yeah, I mean, you, you know, the, you know, reading that, you know, sets up a bit of a conceptual foundation for you to then to be able to explore that. Whereas if you don't have that, you, you know, you, you might lack an orientation. And I think there's value mm. in that. Right. Sure. And, you know, you know, there's, you know, you could be, you know, you know, why is it so riveting and so uh, engrossing when you're playing a sport, you're, you know, you're playing tennis or you're going out for a run and you're fully immersed in that run and you forget about the fact that this girl or this girl or this guy broke up with you two weeks ago. Like, why is that? Mm -hmm. So why is that experience so profound when you're so fixated on a game of tennis or, or an intense game of ping pong? Why is mm -hmm. that? Why are, you, why are you able to be there and experience a full immersion into that without this neurotic circus that's going on in your head where you're constantly thinking about, Oh, what should I say to her? You know, I feel guilty about doing this and maybe I could have done this and then she wouldn't have left me and blah, blah, blah. Like, why are you able to fully connect with that experience? And essentially for that, for that experience, you know, whatever that is, you're able to fully transcend your suffering and it doesn't even, it, it doesn't exist. And then when you're done, then it fully comes back online. Like, like what's going on there? You know, and that's, you know, you mm. know Sam Harris talks a lot about that. And, you know, that, I think that's where you need that orientation. And, and you know, Sam Harris, I think provides um, a profound orientation towards that. And, you know, like learning why, you know, you know what is so profound about that, that uh, in the present moment, mindful experience, and, and how can you then bring that into your moment to moment experience so that you don't just have to mm -hmm. play an intense game of tennis to experience self-transcendence. You can do it at, mm -hmm. at any time, according to the Buddhist perspective or the Hindu perspective. Mm -hmm. So, so I think there's a lot of value in having a spiritual orientation and what you, like what you said again, to, to, um, you know, make this point clear about the variability of, of religious, um, ideology and of spiritual ideology, you know, what you described, you know, you might go to an Advaita Vedanta uh, monastery in Southern India and you might tell them everything and they'd be like, yeah, you, you belong here. Like, so, so then what does that mean then is your, your atheism is somebody else's spiritual Religion. orientation. That, yeah. yeah that's somebody. And, and I mean, Advaita Vedanta within Hinduism, it's not conventionally religious because it's very experiential. Mm. Um, but Maybe they're you know, just you're, atheists. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, your yeah. atheism is somebody else's uh, spiritual beliefs. So that that begs the question: What is spiritual belief? What is religion? And is there something universal that we can tap into then, where we can have different labels and different names? You can call it one thing, yeah. and somebody across the world can call it a different thing, and you're getting yeah. at the same thing. Yes. Oh, agreed. Okay. You'll have to text me this. Um, I don't want to botch the pronunciation, but please text me <laughs> this school of thought that you're, that you're talking about. Cause I would very yeah. much like to, I'd be curious to, to learn more about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually Sam, Sam, Sam is doing a great job on his app, you know, huge credit to him. He just released a series on traditional Buddhist texts and also a whole series on Advaita Vedanta where the, where he has somebody reading these texts with this very spiritual music. And it's, it's, these are great, sessions to sleep to usually I'm, I'm doing it every night <laughs> nice um so so i'll i'll uh forward you that and that'll be 
I'll be curious to hear what you think. Um, is there anything else you wanted to say in response to that before I let my friend Joe hop in here and uh, ask a question or make a point about what you said? Um, no, let's go ahead and have Joe come on. Sure. Okay. So, so Joe, to, to set this up, Joe is a youth, is, is a Christian youth pastor here. Um, very thoughtful guy, very open-minded, uh, very much science-oriented um, and very rational and logical and is uh, malleable according to, you know, reason. He, he's willing to hear rational arguments and consider them uh consider them sincerely, but at the same time, he is, uh, he does have a Christian worldview. So let's, let, let's see what he has to offer. <laughs> cool. Joe, welcome. I had to figure out the little mute button myself. <laughs> oh, can you hear me now? Yes. Uh, Joe. Yeah. Hey, Joe, welcome. thanks for that intro. That was, that was pretty good. Um, You're yeah, welcome. to one of your comments, Rav, definitely, well, first of all, I'm only, I have one more week left of being a youth pastor, and then I've officially resigned after seven years. Um, but one of your comments was that it's uh, regarding the purity culture. Uh, it's very much here, although I've never heard it as extreme as someone being uh, betrothed. That That is very intense. Um, but I guess just practically, I'm wondering, Alice, if you could if you have any insight on, is there ways the church can talk about sex, our purity, our abstinence, or even, even as a parent, like I'm a dad with a two-year-old girl um, and a boy on the way. Um, and there, there's a lot that's coming at them. Like there's a hyper-sexualized culture, not the, and I'm not necessarily saying I'm totally against it. Um, although it has, clearly it has its downfalls, like, uh, within just extreme hedonism. Um, it has, it almost has its own religious mindset. Like it's forced on them that they have to actually, you know, try sex maybe if they don't want to, but I'm just, yeah, kind of mm. curious on some of that practical stuff. Um, I've, yeah, I've even asked Joshua Harris who, I don't mm -hmm. know if you re if you read the book, Yes, yes. Yeah, I kiss Oh, Josh goodbye. and I are acquaintances now. Um, oh, his, his book, I Kiss yeah. Dating Goodbye, was, uh, <laughs> it was second only to my Bible. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, of course. Yeah, he's known yeah. as, for anyone who doesn't know, he's like the author of purity culture, kind of, um, in some ways. Uh, but yeah, and he has since deconverted from Christianity and, and, um, and has been trying to uh, better understand the ways a lot of his previous teachings have hurt people. But yeah, Josh, Josh, I consider a dear acquaintance. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I think he's doing a, a good job in his sort of humble approach to yeah. understanding the hurt that he caused. Um, and I think a lot of that is valid. But again, I asked the question to him and to you, uh, should the church and can the church and how can the church talk about these things? Because um, mm. that's it's going to be talked about particularly in the home, but maybe even at, at youth group, which I did it maybe once a year, but it was more just trying to get students to ask leaders questions and open up. Mm. Um, but no, nothing necessarily too aggressive. Um, but yeah, what mm. would you say? So 
firstly, I'm so just out the gate, like I am not a parent and I, I very much respect that there's from, from what parents tell me, there's like a shift that happens once you become a parent that until you are a parent, you can't really say how you think kids should be raised. So just to like disclaim that, like, um, not a parent would not tell anyone how to like, you know, what they should and shouldn't tell their kids about sex. I think that's a, that's, um, you know, that that's personal. I don't feel qualified to speak to that entirely, but I will say from, uh, from my perspective of having lived through my experiences and my upbringing, particularly with purity culture, I think that, um, Christian churches and youth groups today, for me, the most bottom line, I guess, is to emphasize consensual, enthusiastic, uh, yeses and nos. Um, I, I don't think that it's healthy to, to teach people that their body belongs to someone else. Um, uh, personally, like I, and, and that, you know, they're only supposed to give their body to that someone else once they've signed some piece of paper and made an oath before God. I think that there's a lot of shame that comes with teachings like that. And a lot of, um, under education and inexperience and, and a lot of, uh, unintentional side effects that come from that, such as, uh, anxiety around sexual touch, panic attacks when kissing, um, a, a lot vaginismus when when a woman's vagina closes and literally cannot take a, uh, it cannot complete the act of sex because there's been so many years of programming to shut down physically when when any when anything gets too erotic or when you get too turned on. Never mind policing your thoughts around sexuality. And so I think that um, Christian churches today could learn a lot from looking at other progressive. Christian churches, because um, like one of my one of my good friends, Brenda Davies, she's one of my friends who very much identifies as a Christian and is a very sex positive Christian. But consent, I think, should be paramount. And this this is I completely agree with you. Kids should not be pressured to have sex or to have sexual experiences or to talk about their sexuality before they're ready. Like I'm I'm opposed to that as well. Um, to me, it should be about consent and freedom to say yes and no. Um, but in order to be able to say no, we have to, I think it's important to show what a healthy version of saying yes looks like. And with, you know, like I just shared, like within my Christian upbringing, yes was only acceptable once you were legally married to, uh, in a heterosexual marriage. And, um, I think that there's a lot of ways that, uh, a lot of other people, especially non-heterosexual people are really hurt by that teaching. Um, but then there's, you know, tons of, tons of stuff out there that, that talks to that experience. That's not my experience, but I think that in short, putting less emphasis on sex before marriage and dressing modestly, putting, putting less emphasis on, um, what you should do and more emphasis on what feels good to you. What does not feel good to you? What does enthusiastic consent look like? What does a no look like? How can we better honor each other's boundaries and speak up for our own? Because especially as a girl, um, and I can't speak for all girls, but for me and most of the girls I know who grew up, we were told to be the gatekeepers of sexuality. Like, don't don't encourage men to look at you lustfully, dress modestly, like, don't don't flirt, you know, and like, um, we were encouraged to be the gatekeepers, but also encouraged to submit and say yes, in nearly every other way to male leadership. So it was very confusing. 
um, to both be told, you know, women, you are to submit to men um, and then be told, but you're to tell them no, if they try to come on to you, that's. Mm. No, um, when, when you're trained to say yes and be a people pleaser, basically. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think I, I would say to read up on progressive Christian books to see how they're doing it, because that would be a way to still operate within um, within Christianity without introducing, you know, maybe perhaps more secular um, viewpoints to still honor the, the Christian tradition and speak the Christian language in ways that are less uh, harmful to people's sexuality. I think that would be where I would recommend looking. Yeah. No, thanks, Alice. That was really well said. And again, sorry just to hear about such a tumultuous upbringing. It sounds, no. yeah, it sounded really difficult. Thank you. I appreciate your empathy. <laughs> and thank you for your question. That's a really good question. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks, Rav. Yeah, yeah, thanks for the question. A anybody else, feel free to um, ask to become a caller if there's any question you may have. Um, so the, you know, the purity culture thing, like, you know, Joe mentioned it, it is here in my area, but, and I'm not as immersed in the Christian, <coughs> excuse me. I'm not as immersed in the, the, the Christian community as, as Joe and, uh, and other people are, but, um, of, of course I'm referring to the extreme level of purity culture that you talked about. That is not something I've ever seen. Mm. And the closest thing I've seen to that is within, um, very fundamentalist Sikh, Hindu and Muslim groups, of course, mm -hmm. but, you know, you know, so that's one thing we've talked about the purity culture. That was one, you know, that extreme form of purity culture that led you away from Christianity. What are, mm -hmm. what are some other very fundamental things that made you leave the faith? If there's one or two other things that you want to drill into, and then we can talk about that. Yeah. So I think, I think for me, the, <sighs> the contradictions um, became more than I could bear uh, would be like a more, a, perhaps a concise way of putting it. There's, it requires a lot of elaboration, but um, I think for me, I can, I, I very much admire and can appreciate people who are able to read spiritual books. Um, we'll keep it about the Bible for now, since we're talking about my experience in Christianity, which was based on uh, the Bible, mainly the, the New International Version, if we're going to get nitpicky about which version. Um, but for anyone listening, uh, but I think the contradictions within the Bible about the nature of God, the nature of Jesus, the way to live a righteous moral life, it became more than I could um it, it it did not serve me. It made me feel like I like my mind was fracturing. Um, I lived in a constant state of anxiety, worrying about whether or not I was pleasing God the right way. When this verse says to please in this way, but this verse says to please in that way, I constantly wrestled with like, how do I know which is the way God wants me to please him today? You know, like I, he looks at my heart. But I don't even know what my own heart's saying because the Bible also says my heart is deceitfully wicked and can't be trusted. So I don't even know. <laughs> I, I, it's difficult to describe and articulate the daily anxiety, the chronic anxiety that my faith caused me um, because 
again, I didn't experience God in any personal way, according to the tradition that I grew up in. Um, I never got visions. I never felt God put anything on my heart. I never prayed in tongues. I faked it, but I never um, experienced whatever that rapture of intercession with God was that other people would talk about. Um, and I, because of that, all I had to rely on was this text called the Bible. Um, all I would pray to God, but it was a one-way conversation. I never felt God speak or impress or get, even make me feel anything back to me. And so because all I had to go off of was, was this book, and because I was this book talks about hell, um, and I didn't want to go there, obviously, I was like, okay, then how do I live a life that's pleasing to God? And I really wanted to. And I was bound to be a missionary. I was in nursing school and I was going to be a missionary nurse is like how devoted I was to this, to my faith. Like I really, I was a true believer, even though I didn't experience it. I genuinely believed. Um, and so I thought, okay, I guess until God's willing to touch me himself or speak to me himself, I'll just have to try to hear him through the Bible since this is all I have to go off of. But the Bible was too confusing for me. Um, it's too, it, it, it's, it's, God is a malicious, vindictive, sadistic fuck <laughs> at some parts. And then in others, he talks about compassion and unconditional love and forgiveness. And I just didn't know how are we supposed to discern what verses we're supposed to focus on? And the Christian tradition I grew up in said, oh, the Holy Spirit will lead you. But again, I never felt the Holy Spirit. I was never led to do anything. And I was right. told constantly to not lean on my own understanding because there's a Bible verse that's very clear about that. Like lean not on your own understanding. Um, don't trust your heart if your heart is deceitfully wicked. And so in other words, mm. like don't trust your intuition. Don't trust your mind. Don't trust your heart. Um, at the same time, there's verses that God cares about the desires of your heart. He's the one who gave them to you. So it's like, well, which is it then? Am, is my heart deceitfully wicked or is my heart telling me the desires God wants for me? How am I supposed to know? <laughs> so That sounds very confusing, understandably. It was. And, and because God never told that. me, I was like, I'm done with this. Eventually, it, I just couldn't <laughs> handle it anymore. I couldn't handle that anxiety when the eternal consequences of getting it wrong were eternal torment. I couldn't handle that. That that was not helpful to me. That was not making me a happy, loving, kind uh, person. I, I was just tor tormented. Um, the other thing that really, the ultimate contradiction was if God is omnipotent and like he's, if he's all powerful and he's all knowing and he created everything, then God knew what he was doing when he made the angel Lucifer who he knew because he's all knowing would eventually become Satan and God made us knowing that we would use our free will to disobey him and give Satan a foothold. And God, if God made everything, he made hell all of a sudden I, I could not shake that. I was like, wait, who's the real devil here? Is it Lucifer who called God out on his vanity and narcissism? Or is it God who made Lucifer knowing he would turn into Satan, knowing that Satan would drag those of us to hell because I, I just couldn't understand the concept of God gave us free will, but also knows what we're going to do with it because he made everything. So that was another fundamental thing that I just was like, I, I, I'm not going to, I think I only have one life. I don't have evidence to think that I have another. I'm not going to spend it tormenting myself with this anxiety anymore. If, if there is a God that loves me, he's going to understand 
because I can't, I can't live like this anymore. I, I was, I wasn't eating. I would, I, I got in a car accident one time because I had a panic attack because my anxiety got so bad. Like I was, I was like, I, I was in therapy for three years after I left my faith because then the religious trauma kicked in because I didn't know how to live without God. Um, I wow. didn't know. I, I, the world looked completely different to me because I, I grew up believing that God made everything and there's a reason for that, for why bad things happen. And it's all part of God's mysterious plan that we don't get to know yet. And all, you know, all, all the things. Um, and I could, without that belief system to comfort me anymore, I was shattered. I, I don't, I don't know how yeah. to articulate. I, I wrote a book about it. So if anyone wants to read my book, it's called wayward. You can get it on Amazon, but it's, uh, yeah, it's too much to get into here, but basically that's why I left. I just did not find, again, I don't find mythology to be helpful. It's not been helpful to me. And I certainly don't find contradicting rights and wrongs that were found in the Bible um, to be helpful to me. I, I appreciate and respect that they're helpful to very many people. They can't imagine living life without it. And honestly, neither could I. It was very hard for me to want to live without that. Um, so I don't wish that deconversion on anyone necessarily, because it's, it can be really tough for some people. And it, it definitely was for me, but I think that it was the bottom line for me is that it was tougher for me. It was, it was harder for me to stay within that belief system, feeling as wretched and confused, uh, as I did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I wish I had a theological background so we could, we could talk about some of those things that you did. Um, unfortunately I don't. So, so, so I kind of like from, that you don't know. <laughs> just you kind of, yeah, ex exactly. But like, but like on the surface, though, like you know, there's there's the you know, there's the Bible and what it says, and then there's your anxiety and your confusion about it. Now, yeah. how correlated those two things are? I mean, obviously, we're humans and we have our biases and we have our predispositions, and then then there's you know what you were indoctrinated with, and how the Bible was taught to you and what interpretation your family had and you had, you know, like, is there, you know, like, as I said earlier, how much of this is, you know, the, the Bible itself versus the interpretation of it? Like, I, I ultimately don't know, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, you said that God is uh, malicious and uh, you use some other very powerful <laughs> negative adjectives. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you got to get a few in there, but like malicious and some of the other things you said, can you expand on why, uh, what you mean by that? Yes. So uh, much of that is found in the Old Testament. And a lot of Christians today um, focus more on the New Testament uh, because the New Testament is where Jesus comes in. And the idea of Jesus coming to earth to save us is to like to make new laws like in other words the, the laws of the old testament don't apply with the arrival of jesus because jesus came to change things up and be the ultimate sacrifice for our sins so we don't have to do sacrifices anymore like in okay so like for example in the bible in the old testament abraham who's like the father of you know all these different uh tribes of israel ultimately like uh abraham God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son. Um, basically, 
uh, back then God apparently wanted a lot of sacrifices and usually it was animals like goats and, and sheep, lambs, um, that they would make a burnt offering and build a little altar and burn these animals, kill these animals and then burn them on the altar because God liked the way they smelled. Like there's very explicit Bible verses about the aroma that's pleasing to God, how the animals should be slaughtered. Um, all of this stuff you can find it in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, like much of the, the earlier books of the old Testament. Um, also, before going further, to address my point about a lot of Christians focus only on the new, that's understandable, and I think that's preferable personally, but I was taught to take the whole Bible as God's word, not just the New Testament. So that's why these Old Testament books really <laughs> fucked me up in many ways, because um, in the Old Testament, it says over and over that God does not change. God is, you know, always present. He always has been. He always will be, and God never changes. Um, and God just had a lot of requirements for how he wanted beings to be sacrificed to please him. And he told Abraham that instead of sacrificing an, an animal, he had to sacrifice his son, his child, uh, Isaac. And so Abraham's like, God, you know, like, why are you asking this of me? Okay, fine, I'll do it because you know how much I love you. Um, and God was like testing Abraham's devotion. So he tell Abraham tells his son, Isaac, like, come on, we're going to go make a sacrifice. He doesn't tell Isaac that Isaac is the sacrifice. They go up on the mountain, they build the altar, you know, with the stones and the firewood and all that. And Isaac at some point is like, dad, you know, where's the, where's the lamb or the goat or whatever that we're sacrificing? And, and Abraham's like, oh, well, God, God will provide it because he doesn't want to tell Isaac it's him, and, presumably. And um, eventually at some point, Abraham has to do the deed. And so he puts, he binds Isaac and puts him on the altar somehow. One can only imagine that Isaac was struggling and fighting back against his dad, who must have looked like he lost his fucking mind. And then as, as Abraham is about to like kill him with, I believe it's a knife, an angel suddenly appears and says, you don't have to kill your son anymore. God's tested your devotion and you passed the test. You were willing and that's enough. Here's a lamb tangled in this bush that you can sacrifice instead. What kind of a loving God does that? Never mind to Abraham, but to poor Isaac. We're supposed to celebrate this story as like, look at how faithful God is. He just wants to test our devotion. And then he comes through with, you know, something else and doesn't have us do this bad thing. What kind of a sick fuck does that? So, yeah, that's why I have strong negative adjectives. That's one example of a story from the Bible where it's like, what is that? You know, and, and never mind the other verses in the Bible where it says to dash the infants of your enemies against rocks. Um, it's brutal. You know, it's just brutal. Even yeah. in the New Testament, the crucifixion of Jesus. My God, he couldn't find a better way to save humans than to have his only beloved son tortured to death on a cross. That was the only way this all creative, all knowing God could figure <laughs> out how to save us. I that's not a loving being in my definition of love. I, I can't, I don't think most parents would crucify their children. Mm. So that's not love. And I think most of us can agree on that, but we're told it's love. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That answer I your mean, question. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah. And I'm, I have more questions. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> no, but I, I mean like the crucifixion again, I'm not a theological expert, but I mean, what, you, you know what you know you're saying what loving parent would crucify his own child but you know that begs the question of what what will how much will does god have there i, I don't know like that you know maybe that's just the way it is and that's just what has to happen it's that's not god being cruel that's just 
Well, then he's not yeah, all powerful, I would argue. Maybe God's not cruel. Maybe, but, but then he's not all powerful either. If he could intervene and doesn't. Yeah, and, and I don't know. Is there, you know, I, I assume there must be a spectrum of Christian theology on that, of how powerful God is. Yeah, there, oh, I'm sure. Um, I've I've not met any Christians personally that I know of who believe that God is not all powerful. Usually the answer okay. that they give when faced with um, the, this sort of conundrum uh, is, oh, well, God works in mysterious ways and we don't get to know. Um, that was in my book I write about, that was my first doubt. I was seven years old. A pastor shared the story of how his toddler, his little girl who was two, suffocated to death in a dry cleaning bag. And I was at seven sitting there in the pew, like rattled, like, wait, what? But God's supposed to be all powerful. He can do anything. Why didn't he save her? And my parents, and you know, my dad was a pastor. Um, he wasn't the pastor telling the story, obviously, but my parents told me like, oh, you know, like, like we don't get to know. And I was like, then God killed her. And they were like, no, no, God didn't kill her. He just allowed her to die. And we don't get to understand his plan. You know, like God wanted her up in heaven with him. That was unacceptable to me. I forced myself to accept it because I didn't have an alternative. I, I wasn't exposed to an alternative. But um, and that was the answer I gave when people would challenge me about my Christian beliefs when I was a Christian. It was like, oh, we don't get to know. That's why they call it faith. And, you know, now these Band-Aid answers I find just incredibly hurtful and belittling to human intelligence and uh, cowardly, frankly. Mm. Yeah. And that, that example, the other example you quickly gave of the throwing stones at the, the infants of your enemies. I mean, Bashing I, I, their I, heads I just, against rocks. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I just, just wonder not knowing like where that's coming from, what, you know, what context that is, if there's some, logical explanation for what's going on there. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't either. And I bet a lot of other people don't too. You know, there's a lot of people who'd say, oh, that's, you know, allegorical. That's poetry. You know, it's it's like all this <laughs> stuff. And it's like, okay, well, is it poetry to circumcise your son? No, people take that literally. They chop off the part of the penis. So why wasn't that part allegory? If a lot of it's allegory, why isn't it allegory then for other things? Um, why isn't it, how does one pick and choose what's metaphor and what was meant to be taken literally? Um, and again, mm. that's where I would be told, oh, the Holy Spirit will lead you, you know, that's between you and God. And it's like, all right, well, if God doesn't talk though, and the Holy Spirit doesn't lead, I don't know what you're, what you want me to do with this. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that is, that is an issue because people say the Bible is an authoritative divine text, mm -hmm. but of course we're, we're humans, you know, reading this and, this has been passed down from how many centuries and how many people have translated this, how much of this was spoken and written, how many, you know, uh, iterations of this there were, were there any mistranslations, you know, who wrote this at yeah. what time and what, like, what, and, and, and then of course, you know, the interpretation of it, you know, somebody could say, this is the divine text and this is what it means, but somebody else could be like, no, 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 that's not, you're not interpreting it right. You know, the Bible doesn't just speak for itself. It's like we have to read it and comprehend it. And so an, an, an Orthodox Christian can say something that's totally different from what a uh, evangelical Christian will say. Mm -hmm. Like, like I, I just sat on my friend, uh, Angelo, a couple of days ago, and I'm going to have him on again to talk about his really profound experience at a Orthodox Christian monastery. 
And I was really stunned by a few things he said because they, they seem to align more with Eastern religions than with the evangelical tradition that I'm kind of surrounded with in my area. Mm-hmm. And, and, and one of the points he was saying was just surrendering to the ultimate mystery of God mm. and not claiming any kind of certainty of like, we know, ex- you know, we know exactly what God is and what he's doing here. There's much more of a mystery element, whereas within the evangelical tradition, there tends to be more of a affirmative certainty about mm-hmm. a lot of fundamental things. And sure. that's, that's right. And so the, or, the Orthodox view, at least if he's expressing it correctly, it's much more in line with the, the Hindu view, which is much more about surrendering to the mystery rather than definitively making claims about what God wants, and what his will is, um, and what exactly the Bible is saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think, um, I, I, again, like, I think people's personal experiences um, and their own personal interpretations of any scriptural texts are what should matter most to them. Uh, I, and yeah, for me, it was just no longer helpful. It caused way more suffering than it ever brought peace uh, for me and for many other people too, you know, but that's, I think that if other people care to look at these stories and deeply ponder them and decide, you know, in their own internal system of like what their what they feel is true and what's not, or what's open to interpretation or what's literal, like, yeah, everyone should have the right to do that. You know, like that's, mm-hmm. um, I think that, and a lot of people obviously do find value in that more people in the world than not, um, find value in that. And, and that's, that's beautiful. If it makes you feel like you live a more, like you're a more loving kind, compassionate, happy, peaceful person to, to, to have a spiritual practice or to read spiritual texts, like go for it. But for, for some of us, it has an opposite effect. (laughs) It makes us Mm. angry and sad, heartbroken, anxious, um, and controlling of other people, uh, controlling of ourselves and hard on ourselves. Like, I think there just needs to be more acceptance that we're all different and that's okay. There's no one one truth. There's no one right way that all of us should be practicing what we call spirituality or presence or consciousness. Um, Mm -hmm. That's what I would like to advocate for. And that's why I think that uh, these things are such a personal journey. And it's never been my mission to try to, again, I I don't want to deconvert people. I just don't want to be converted either. You know, it's like, I very much live and let live. Like if that's true for you and that's working for you and that's giving you a more positives in your life, why would you stop? Keep going, you know, but please accept, please believe at the very least that that's not true for everyone. And then we're cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and have some humility in what you believe in and, yeah. rec- and you know, recognize that p- people living in the other side of the planet or, believing in totally different texts originally written in different languages in a different in a different part of the world have had very similar experiences to you if we're talking about mystical experience for example or they they've 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 also felt unconditional love and they've surrendered to something bigger than themselves and they've had they've had very similar experiences so to claim authority over you know, this, this is God speaking to me. This, you know, this is yeah. evidence of this faith. It's like people across the world in various traditions have had, you know, identical experiences, arguably, to what you've had. And recognize that if you were born in that part of the world, you know, you can have, have the same 
soul or the same brain um, of a Christian person born into a uh, a Hindu family in northern India, which does, doesn't have a lot of Christian exposure, and you would have the, mm-hmm. the same fervor, the same passion, mm-hmm. and the same convictions in a different context. And what and and you'll just as vigorously defend that belief as you're defending your belief now. I think that's oh. a reality often that d- doesn't get emphasized uh, enough, and, and pe- people are just very narrow-minded and lack education for other beliefs, and they just they're, they're born into a particular belief and they're defending yeah. it at all costs. And well, um, and it's still and, and they, fear yeah. other beliefs too. Like I, I was definitely told, you know, if you even if you even open a book about another religion, you're giving Satan a foothold to lead you away from God. Um, I'm so happy when I hear of other religions like certain sects of Hinduism that are the opposite. That's like, no, like God can be found anywhere. Learn about whatever religion. Jesus can totally be integrated into this belief system. Like I find those more inclusive religions, in my opinion, to be the, the, the kinder ones because it accepts diversity. It accepts different people. Um, And that's beautiful. And actually what you just said um, about the, you know, how the manifestations of what I might call God could appear differently um, in like if I'd had an Indian upbringing. One of the things that brought me a lot of healing, actually, uh, was, well, first I'll say what I needed healing for. Um, So once I I lost my faith, uh, I was really still haunted by the supernatural looking phenomena that I grew up witnessing, which we call being slain by the spirit. And it's like rolling around on the floor, writhing, shaking, having bodily tremors that you can't control, gibbering in tongues, weeping or laughing hysterically. Um, YouTube it. It's quite something. Uh, I was haunted after I became an atheist with like, what was that? You know, maybe it is proof of God because what else would that be? Um, It was learning what else that could be that gave me so much peace and allowed me to like move on into a healthier version of myself um, and accept. And what it was, was learning about Kundalini yoga. Uh, It's also called Shaktipat initiation or the Chinese call it Qigong deviation syndrome, or there's all these other terms for it, but it's the same set of symptoms. It's like you enter a trance state often through chanting, meditating, music, prayer, um, and, or fasting even, and you're, you get the, uncon- the uncontrollable bodily shaking, you get a rhythmic rocking, you, get, uh, you can get versions of praying in tongues or just weeping or crying, and it looks exactly the same. I, so I speak at conferences and give a presentation talking about this. It's called the, the Neurotheology of Mystical Experiences. Um, I am not an expert. I always abundantly disclaim that. I just am here to share what I found that brought me an element of peace and understanding was seeing how universal this experience of what I grew up calling God is. Other people call it Latihan Kejuan if they grew up in the, the, in the Indonesian Suba tradition. I called it the Holy Spirit. Some Hindus call it Kundalini Yoga or Serpent Awakening. And so it's interesting to see the same phenomenon universally and being like, oh, it's not a testament to the Christian God. It's just a testament to the wonders of consciousness and how we're able to alter it and induce these states and have these psychedelic experiences that have a lot of common overlaps. Like, that's amazing. What is this? Um, And that brought me so much peace and excitement and intrigue um, because I wasn't scared of it anymore. I was fascinated. Yeah, yeah. Well said. And, And not to say that we can give a full 
neurochemical explanation of what's happening when you're no. on five grams of mushrooms or when you're doing kundalini yoga and you, you're mm-hmm. in some incredible trance like we you know as you know jordan peterson often talks about the, the science of mystical experience and when talking about psychedelics he he talks about the clinical literature and the great studies at johns hopkins university and we recently had on dr matt johnson from johns hopkins uh i think a couple, couple weeks ago and we talked about some of those studies but as he said and as jordan peterson has said and i think they're correct it's like ultimately we really don't know what we're saying like we we, mm-hmm. we really don't know what's happening ultimately mm-hmm. is these things are really beyond understanding and that's true for psychedelics which is which offer a, a gateway into a mystical experience and that's true of mystical experience in general mhm yeah i agree i think it's um i think it's a field of wonder uh that we may never fully understand to the depths that it could be understood um unless we become non-humans and somehow like download our our consciousness onto non-biological forms not to get all sci-fi on you but yeah like i think that there's mm. um we're, we're point is we're limited by what we can we're, we're limited with what we can know because we're limited by the questions we can ask because we're we're not we again we don't know what we don't know about um so i think that that for me um it just becomes a fascinating hobby of discovery and questioning to look at well what do we know about what goes on in the brain during a psychedelic experience whether soberly induced or um psilocybin induced or lsd induced like we can see some things but it's not the full story and the bigger question is why do we have receptors in our brains to have these types of experiences you know like a lot of people mm. would see that as evidence of god or of uh you know other realms and planes of existence where for me it's like could be totally but let's not jump to that conclusion because it could be a bunch of other things we're not considering either um so or yeah or it could be both or it could be both you, you can, yeah like how how know, can we know <laughs> science yeah. and spirituality don't don't have to be oppositional that they, they, they can move together and often they don't but they can I work agree. together i think and i think they're one, often one, two sides of the same coin yeah and I, I i do have one big one more big question about your experience with faith and your your views on it um that i want to ask in a second but mm-hmm. one other point i'm i'm also going to make too is i when i had carson kavari on the podcast a couple of weeks ago who's the clinic director of thrive downtown Probably the the biggest, most comprehensive psychedelic therapy clinic in all of North America here, mm-hmm. here, here in my hometown. Lucky me, <laughs> uh, or, or a, a couple hours away from me, technically, mm-hmm. but but in my area in Vancouver. And he was saying, based off of um, a lot of experience working with various clients, he says that uh, religious people who do psychedelics often tend to, like, if we're talking about higher dose psychedelic experiences, like. Um, if, if we're just talking about DMT or we're talking about six or seven grams of mushrooms or a large dose of LSD, mm-hmm. religious people who engage in these experiences often tend to meet in some mysterious way the deities that they are mm-hmm. conditioned to believe are true and are meaningful to them in some way. Yes. Same with um, near-death experiences. Yeah. Right. Or, or, or at least they're, if, if they're not meeting them, whatever that means. And, and to some extent, I have no idea what this means, <laughs> but, but just uh, the, the way that they're interpreting um, certain spiritual experiences, they often, uh, it often tends to confirm or strengthen their, uh, 
their prior beliefs, their, their prior religious beliefs. And, 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 and this branches into another conversation too. I mean, there, there's one uh, great survey at Johns Hopkins university, which found that uh, religious people who do psychedelics t- tend to report two big things. The first one is that they, they tend to experience a reinvigoration of their faith. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, like their, their faith can be very rational or, inter- or, or intellectual, mm-hmm. and it can be kind of dead in a way. And through this spiritual experience, their, their faith can carry a new experiential kind of meaning that's deeply profound to them, and that can be transformational. Mm-hmm. And the second thing they find, though, which, which is what gives a lot of pause to Christians and other religious people thinking about psychedelics, is they often tend to adapt more universal beliefs about consciousness and about God after their psychedelic experiences. So, so you know, a, a Christian who does five grams of mushrooms might have a greater appreciation for something universal, and they might be more open to looking at other faiths. And while remaining in their faiths, they might just have a, a more universal perspective for what mm-hmm. God is. So, mm-hmm. so I think that's a beautiful, I think that's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. I've talked with, um, you know, it's, in- it's interesting. Like I've talked with people who have done psychedelics and had their faith affirmed and then people who have done psychedelics and lost their faith completely. Um, it's, it's interesting how it can have that effect. And I'll have to look up these Johns Hopkins studies. Cause if you if what you're saying is that the majority of people of faith who do psychedelics ha- feel that their faith is affirmed, um, that makes sense to me. And again, like I, like I said, like the same thing happens with near death experiences, like whatever culture you grow up in, if you have a near death experience, it's often going to look programmed basically to expect whether it's you know meeting a heavenly father or seeing a past reincarnation life of yourself um there's lots of different variations but and and so it doesn't surprise me that in the psychedelic experience that's induced by um a plant medicine you know or a pharmaceutical like like lsd that it would be similar that that we can expect and um apparently too and i haven't i haven't read into this too much um but apparently for a lot of there's studies that show that atheists who do psychedelics often are no longer atheist after yes. it and yeah and that's really interesting to me because i'm um i came out of many psychedelic experiences still an atheist um as in like oh no i'm not convinced that there's any spirit world or that there's a god i'm just convinced that wow we have so much left to learn about existence and consciousness which to other people like what you were saying earlier is yeah, god that is yeah, you know is true. spirituality it's just those terms uh those terms feel more limiting and unhelpful to me. And so that's just, that's the only reason I don't use them. Um, but yeah, like I think that wonder and consciousness are, are, yeah, the, I don't, it's, it's just endlessly fascinating. And, and mm. so I'm able to benefit and enjoy um, not, it's not always enjoyable psychedelics, but I'm able to reap a lot of their benefits and understand mystical experiences in a way that I couldn't before because I never had them soberly. And so the first time I did LSD, I remember thinking like, this is what the Holy Spirit was. Um, (laughs) It gave me like an understanding of like, oh, it was this type of divine love feeling that they were probably feeling. It's, it's, it was the closest thing that I could imagine. It's like that, that overwhelming feeling of just like 
interconnectedness with everything in existence and that love mm. and just the catharsis of just sitting and weeping for four hours over how beautiful life is. It's like, that's probably <laughs> got to be something close to what it was like for those people experiencing what they called the Holy Spirit. So I'm really grateful to psychedelics that make that type of mystical experience accessible to everyone because you do not need to have faith to feel the effects of magic mushrooms. You do not need to have a spiritual practice to go somewhere on DMT or ayahuasca. It doesn't give a fuck what you believe or don't believe. It will take you there. And that I think is so beautiful. It makes me feel emotional thinking about it because it means that it's accessible to everyone. Love, peace. Mm -hmm. These are not exclusive to you if you are a person who's more hardwired toward faith. They're, they're, it's accessible to everybody. And I, I love that. I think it's just the most beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm getting goosebumps from you describing that, that LSD <laughs> trip. I know, I know we've talked about that for many, many hours, especially when I was in L.A. We, we talked a lot about that. Yeah. Um, and that's, yeah, at some point, I do want to get back into the game, um, pr probably Mescaline or San Pedro. At Ooh. some point, or maybe even or maybe even MDMA, perhaps this summer. I it's it's it's, it's uh, not right now, but at some point in the next mm -hmm. uh, couple months, as I make more progress in my counseling and psychotherapy journey, right now, um, that time mm -hmm. will definitely come, and I, I can't wait for it. But uh, the uh, I was gonna say, yeah, you mentioned, yeah, the the survey we we've talked about on the podcast before. Uh, that was also Johns Hopkins, and it found something like seventy percent of atheists who had done, I think it was DMT specifically, mm -hmm. uh, or, or, or it might've been DMT or mushrooms, one or one of the two mm -hmm. people who do that 70% of atheists no longer identify with the term atheist anymore. And, oh man. Yeah. And I want to read the yeah. fine print because I'm curious how many of them were lifelong atheists or who became atheists in the way that I did as an adult. Like I'd be curious to know the nuance of their background in atheism. Do you know if it got into that yes. at all? No, I know. I can't remember. I, I didn't go into that micro mm. detail. But yeah, I, I would be curious to learn about that, too. But yeah, that, that is a that is an interesting finding. And, you know, for you, you know, you talk about you, you doing these profound experiences and and marveling at the beauty of consciousness and of the, the human brain. You know, you know, for me, I'm, I'm comfortable using the word God there, at, at least at this mm -hmm. point, because I think that's still I think that maintains a level of wonder and mystery kind of an infinite mystery that I think just consciousness alone sometimes doesn't um, convey that same meaning to many people. Mm -hmm. and, and of course we're talking about semantics here. So you, you could say consciousness and I could say my, my, you know, my understanding of God from an Eastern perspective, and we could 95% agree perhaps mm -hmm. we're using different words for it. And that's mm -hmm. fine. I, I'm just more willing to use a word like God or to use a word like the divine or the universe and because because I, from my readings of Eastern literature, um, that just resonates with me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, yeah. I think that's beautiful. And I completely agree with you. <laughs> yeah. Um, one, I got one more big question I have for you, which is about just the, the story of Jesus. And I, I'm reading a lot into this right now, kind of for the first time. And I'm and I'm admittedly getting my wisdom from more alternative sources like Alan Watts and Eckhart Tolle and uh, Adyashanti, who's a um, a prominent Western mystic and meditation teacher. And mm -hmm. he's, he has a few series in Sam Harris's meditation app. Um, I think it's called Recognition. And they're beautiful meditations that I do a lot. 
And I, I was looking into him and I saw, oh, he has, he has a book on Jesus. And it's about, um, I forget what the name is, but it's something like Jesus was a revolutionary mystic. And it doesn't go into like, like a lot of the resurrection stuff or other things that certain people have um, issues with. But it talks about the greater mythology of Jesus Christ and the beauty of that and what we can learn from it. And mm-hmm. I'm, still, I'm still reading the book and it's very interesting to me. But I'm curious for you um when it comes to the jesus story like are there issues you have like we talked about the crucifixion but are there issues you have with the messages that jesus was preaching something like things that you find hateful or problematic or malicious or 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 do you think there's a lot of um overwhelming love and compassion and good virtues to learn from the example of jesus i think there's both um so I, let, let's see, like, I, I, the Jesus that I'm familiar with is, again, the one found in the New Testament. Um, I've, I've admittedly not read much about Jesus from other sources, and I have to assume that those other sources are drawing on the Jesus in the New Testament. I'm not aware of Jesus Christ appearing in any other things by the name Jesus Christ. Um, arguably, there's many Christ-like stories, like the Egyptian version of Horus. Some say is like a Christ story, like Born of a Virgin and all this stuff. And uh, uh, Zoroastrianism gets into Christ-like stories. But if we're talking about the character Jesus Christ, I have to assume people are talking about the New Testament one. And so based on that, and that's the one that I'm most familiar with, um, I'll say that I think Jesus is a mixed bag. Um, I think he definitely has verses where he talks about kindness and compassion and acceptance. And he has verses where he talks about, and I've told you this before in another conversation we have, where he talks about, you know, he did not come here to bring peace, but a sword. And he says to, if you want to follow him, if you don't hate your parents, if you don't hate your brother and sister, you cannot be a true follower of his. Um, And a lot of people interpret that as like Jesus is saying that, you know, people are going to hate you for following me um, because he was such a controversial figure. But it's like, okay, but then why didn't he just say a lot of people are going to hate you for following me? Why did he have to say? Sorry, sorry, you you just cut out a bit or maybe there was a Wi-Fi issue. Can you just repeat the the hating your parents thing? Oh, yeah. You're just saying the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, No, Jesus, there's there's verses where um, Jesus says, if you don't hate your father and mother and your brother and sister, like you, you cannot follow me. And a lot of people interpret that in my circles as Jesus saying basically that if you take up your cross and follow Jesus, a lot of people are going to hate you for it. And that's okay. That's what it takes to be a true follower of Christ is you're going to have to deal with being misunderstood and there's going to be some hate and division involved. But I always thought like, if that's what Jesus meant, why didn't he just say that? Why did he say you have to hate your family? Why did he say he came here to bring a sword and not peace? Like if if he preached again to let your yes be a yes and your no be a no, why did he, why would he suddenly speak in metaphor and allegory? Like, um, so I think that uh, there, there's another instance, another Bible story I'm thinking of where Jesus and some of his disciples are are walking to somewhere they're they did, they did a lot of walking and this woman uh I, th- I believe she was a canaanite she approaches jesus wanting a healing um and i think it was for her for maybe her daughter it was either for herself or her daughter but back then the canaanites 
um, a lot of Israelites had a lot of racism toward the Canaanites. They were like an ostracized minority group, the Canaanites were. Um, uh, DNA evidence now suggests that they looked very Eurasian in appearance, um, not quite as Western. Uh, but regardless, Jesus ignores her. And the disciples are getting annoyed because she keeps begging for Jesus to give her the healing. And Jesus is like, like uh, he, he, he basically calls her a dog and says to get away for her to get away from him. Um, and she's like, yes, he call, he, but he calls her, he calls her a bitch. We're not a bitch. What, well, let me see if I can find it. He's like, but her response to him is that even, even dogs get the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And then he decides, okay, I'm going to reward your faith and give you your healing because your persistence and your faith is worthy of that. So, but one could also see that story as not Jesus rewarding persistent faith, but Jesus practicing racism. Um, Here he is giving out healings to all these other people, Jews and Israelites, but not a Canaanite woman. Um, And so mm. it's interesting, like there's there's verses like like there's stories like that about Jesus Christ that seem contradictory to what he says elsewhere. Um, and so I think, yeah, he's a mixed bag, you know, like like the story of Mary and Martha always bothered me too. Mary and Martha were these sisters who like were big fans of Jesus. They might have been called disciples had they been men, but they were women. And he, uh, you know, like uh, Mary was the sister who liked to just listen to Jesus talk. And one time he was over at Mary and Martha's house and Martha was busy, like setting the table, cooking dinner, like doing all this work to entertain Jesus and his disciples. And Mary, like she got frustrated with Mary being like, hey, I need a little help, like getting all this stuff ready. And Jesus rebuked her and said, Mary has chosen the better thing, which is to literally sit at his feet and listen to him talk. And I always thought that was really cold of Jesus to be like, whoa, Martha's over here busting her ass to like make you guys dinner. And all she's asking for is a little help. (laughs) And you're just going to be like, like, no, like really what you should be doing is sitting, listening to me on my high horse. Like that's how that story always felt to me. And again, that's my own interpretation. (laughs) Other people can read that and be like, no, because what's more important than eating is listening to Jesus, obviously. (laughs) Okay, but people got to eat. The point is, Jesus, even if he was a god, he was in human form uh, at the time, which meant he needed food. And Martha was just looking out. <laughs> so I always thought that was really rude of Jesus to treat her like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, on, on, on some level, I just find this conversation to be comical to like judge like some event from whatever yeah. thousands of years ago <laughs> and be like, oh, what exactly happened at this dinner table? What did he say? Was that cold yeah. or was that cool or was there some? Maybe there was some humor involved or something. Oh, or maybe like what totally. were facial expressions? Like I, I don't. Totally. To some extent, this is this is just. Um, yeah, this is just you know. And the, again, the, the, that's, yeah. Yeah. No, and that's why it's just yeah. no longer of service to me trying to wonder about right. these stories or engage with these stories anymore because we're not going to know, and it doesn't matter to me. Uh, to me, if it makes other people like feel positively impacted, great. It just has an opposite effect on someone like me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But Which is the also other great. examples, yeah. But but the other examples you gave of Jesus saying you, you have to hate your family. That, that that's what he said. To, yeah. To become a Christian. Uh, to to, to was, follow was him. To um, follow him. Let me look it up. I can Google sure, it. Yeah, yeah. You, you you can take a second if you want for sure. Hate brother. Googling. Okay, so. 
we're looking at 1 John 3. In 1 John 3, let me translate it to the NIV version. So I'm not speaking King James gibberish. Um, no offense to the King James people. No offense to King James, no. Yes. Uh, okay, so he's talking about how we need to... Oh, hang on. Where is it? Oh, that's the wrong verse, not 1 John. Okay, Luke, Luke 14. Oh, yeah, my, my friend Joe just texted me, Luke 14, you're right. <laughs> yeah, Luke 14. Thank you, Joe. Um, Thank you, Joe. Yeah. Okay, scrolling. Oh, so he's talking about the cost of being a disciple. So it says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So that's what he says. In that's Luke 14, 25 to 27. Mm. Mm. So again, can, can you just say the can you say the first part again? I I just want to like I just want to hear that again about the hate. I'm I'm just trying to like think of what I mean. Yeah. He said, yeah. So it starts off that large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on, on the surface, that sounds horrible to say that. I, I, I would at least wonder what the defense of that would be. Um, me too. I mean, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, you have to hate yourself. I mean, could, you know, I mean, like, like, like just that part alone, you could, I assume you could argue that, you know, ha hating yourself as in your, you know, your sinful craving self, your ego, you know, I, I've, you know, you, sure. To, to, to what extent hate has been translated to like, like, what does that even mean? Like, does that just mean you, you Maybe don't like reject? Like if you are not willing to reject yeah, sure. your family, you can't be a follower of mine, you know, who, yeah. And here's where we get into the more apologetics leaning arguments of like, right. oh, well, we have to look at the origin of Aramaic or Greek or whatever language it right, was, right. you know, like put it in that context of that culture. And it's like, okay, but I'm not willing to devote my life to being a biblical scholar. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, all good yeah, and course. well. But right now, if we're just told like that, this is the truth. And that's, that's, again, I'm more interested in how, how these verses are practiced on real life people today than what their source origins were because it's just not i don't know it's just not how i personally care to spend yeah. my time yeah 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 and yeah that does sound horrible hating your family in order to follow christ i mean unless there's some cryptic metaphor that i'm not picking up on <laughs> and jesus was a fan of right. metaphor so to be fair he often well, spoke in metaphor and parable okay, okay. so yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I'm I'm curious if my friend Joe might think about that. I I might be interested in, in a different perspective. But how how do you think that might how do you think that is practiced? Do you think that like have you seen people read into stuff like that? And that I think that like you 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 think that justifies self hatred or hatred of your family in the name of Jesus Christ? Um. So I. I, when, whenever this, ver this verse rarely came up in my upbringing, 
whenever it did, people would usually just ignore it and gloss over it um, and carry on to like other verses. Like it, so this section of the Bible ends with verse 34 or uh, 35, which says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear, which was interpreted as like, let the spirit be the one to interpret this section for you. If you have the ears to hear what Jesus really meant, then you're going to get it. And it's not going to be taken at face value as like, you should hate your family. <laughs> um, so that's, uh, that's one way that people interpret this. Um, but me personally, like, it just seems to, this would be an example of a verse that when I was a Christian, I would really have to grasp at straws to make it make sense to my understanding of Jesus. I would have said probably something like oh jesus doesn't mean hate the way we understand hate he means rejection like you have to be willing to walk away from your family and they're going to hate you because you're following jesus because you're you know mm. defying the the order and customs of the day to follow this homeless dude around who says he's the son of god um so that's probably how i would have personally interpreted that verse and now mm. yeah that kind of makes sense verse, a, a little bit I, I i could see that line of reasoning possibly yeah yeah. Sorry, I just lost like you. your own life. Um, okay, you're back. I would have interpreted that with. Uh, oh, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, you were gone for I think, okay. three or four seconds. Yeah, you're back. Okay. Um, I would have interpreted a verse like hating your own life as uh, hate. inherently sinful um again it would have just kind of amalgamated with the other bible verses that i would have been familiar with that says that you're you know like there's no one who is without sin um and you're born with a deceitful wicked heart and so it'd be like yes like hate yourself hate your wickedness hate your sinfulness and take up your cross and follow jesus somebody else is texting me too that that you were cutting out too so it's likely on your end can can you just try repeating that again you would have interpreted you were saying you you would have interpreted the part about hating yourself to be what? Um, I would have interpreted the part about hating myself to be hating my wicked, sinful nature that I was born with. Um, because we're, right. the Bible says in other verses that we're born, uh, that no one is born without sin and that our hearts are, again, deceitfully wicked above all things. And so I would have interpreted a verse like Jesus saying, you have to hate your own life as, oh, well, surely he must mean like we have to hate our sinfulness, you know, like the sinful parts of our life. Um, That's how I would have justified a verse like that. Yeah. Okay. And then, yeah, that that does make sense to me. But this, this, but this deeper and today, I guess this is the one. I just, whoa. Like (laughs) what just happened there? Yeah. I, and, and I'm, this is one of the things I'm so happy about not being a Christian anymore is I don't have to agonize over yeah. these types of things. <laughs> and yeah, and this is a fundamental point for you, this um, belief that you are inherently sinful, wicked, that, that is something you find to be toxic. That was one of the fundamental reasons why you left the faith. Um. I wouldn't say it was one of the top three, but yeah, it's up there. Like why, like who, who does it benefit to believe that we're born, that an infant child, a newborn is wicked and deserving of hell and in need of saving just by their very existence. Like that doesn't sit right with me. Mm. I don't, I don't know how their heart can be deceitfully wicked. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's mm. not, 
that that would be a disposable belief to me. Um, it's not serving anyone. It doesn't inspire me or make me feel loving in any way. I don't think it promotes love uh, or self-love. Um, Jesus also says somewhere, is it Jesus that love, love your neighbor as yourself? And it's like, okay, but if you don't love yourself, because here he's saying to hate yourself, how can you love your neighbor? <laughs> Again, with the contradictions. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I've, yeah, I've, I've talked about that specific line with other people before. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, if you know, I, I could see the justification for that. I mean, if like from a Buddhist perspective, you know, everybody, the the default setting is to identify with your ego self, and your ego self is constantly looking for attention. It's constantly craving. It's constantly wanting things. It's lying it's deceiving it's doing all these horrible things and that's that's a default setting for human beings so through in the buddhist and also in the hindu context through meditation through these uh, transcendental practices you can overcome that and in the at least in the hindu context then you can recognize your true self which i've also heard in the in a biblical context as well actually i've heard of the idea of your true self your your, your true self your inherently true spiritual self is uh, pure consciousness it is loving it is compassionate it is understanding so recognizing that is the goal of true spiritual life I, i've heard that as well mm. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and yeah that, that's that, that the idea of the true self is central to hinduism and and i, and I feel like there's 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 a points of convergence and divergence um on that specific area like Within Hinduism, the idea is that everybody's born with the spirit of God. Everybody is pure consciousness at their root. But because of our identification with our ego selves, which is the deep, like I said, the default setting for everybody, people then are stuck in this trap of craving and of satisfying the ego constantly. So, so it's, it's kind of like, it's both. It's like the, the, the true self is, is loving, kind and pure consciousness, but the default self is is sinful, craving, egotistical, mm-hmm. selfish, etc. So, you know, it's to, to to some degree that there's a bit of a semantic game there too of like default self versus true self. You know, mm-hmm. you, you could switch those words around. Like, what does that really mean? I, I could mm-hmm. see mm-hmm. the line of reasoning <laughs> for both of those things. I I yeah, I suppose in my own verbiage, I would say that they're both your true self. I think that we're we're as conniving and attention seeking as we are generous and compassionate. I don't think one is more true than the other personally. Um, I think that for me, the most honest loving thing that I've been able to do for myself or anyone is again, to first accept, I think love for me, the type of love that I want to practice toward myself and others first accepts. And that means accepting all, um, the, the more conscious, uh, compassionate as well as the more conniving spiteful ugly parts of ourself we must accept if we are to love otherwise for me yes someone's love is worthless and my love is worthless right. i'm not accepting to me that's just my yes. own how i personally practice the word love yeah yeah that, that is the focus right now of my psychotherapy work that i'm doing about loving those parts of myself that I really hate, those yeah. things that are, are, really, are really not good about myself. Learning to love those so that they can have less of a grip on yeah. me at times, or they can you know, kind of dictate my impulses, those kind of 
thing, you know, self-love seems to be the direction that I'm going towards. Yeah. And like, like I was kind of alluding to the other day when we talked, like self-love, I think was the most important part of my journey after Christianity, because Christianity taught me that I was only worthy of love if X, Y, Z. I was only worthy of love if I loved God back the way he wanted, simultaneously told that God's love was unconditional, that I would go to hell if I didn't exercise these conditions, um, if I didn't live a godly life, if I didn't mm. believe Jesus was the only way to heaven and that he was my Lord and Savior, if I didn't obey and submit to my spiritual elders, you know, like, like I, to me, Christianity taught me how to not only not accept myself, but to condemn myself um, daily mm. <laughs> and learning how to put myself oh. back together after I left my faith and learning how to love and accept it started, it all started with acceptance. Can you hear me? Yeah. Did yeah. I, I got live you, out yeah. again. Uh, yeah. I, I got the last bit. Okay. Yeah. So yes. Yeah. The journey, the journey to self love for me right. was the most important part of putting my life back together after I lost my faith. And it was the hardest part and the most rewarding part. And, um, it started, it started with self acceptance of I am, I am mm. worthy of love just because I exist and there's nothing wicked or about me that needs saving. I don't need redeeming. I've, I am worthy of love just because I'm a human. And it's funny because the Bible, the, you know, Christianity told me that, but it also told me all those other things um, that were the opposite, that love is conditional. Um, mm. Getting to know myself and accept and extend love and grace and compassion to myself and especially those parts of myself that I rejected for so long and condemned um, was, again, the hardest and most rewarding part of freeing myself from from my faith. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, your experience of constantly condemning yourself and judging yourself might for, for another Christian, it might be more it might be more of a loving nature, like through the spirit oh, of Jesus Christ, through the spirit of Jesus Christ, they're, they're then able to like love themselves, like through that channel. Yes. They're, they're able to receive that love unconditionally by yes. accepting that. Um, and they're, and I mean, for, from a Hindu perspective, it's more, it's less about belief and, and it, 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 I, th I think it has much more of an unconditional tone to it perhaps. But mm -hmm. for for other people, like for you, it's more of a condemning nature. That was your experience. But for other people, it's more of a loving, a self-loving experience. I think for most people, or at least most people who convert to Christianity um, and aren't just born into it, I think for most people, it's a more loving experience. Like, why else would they convert? Um, I think for a lot of people who who come from non-Christian backgrounds, part of the appeal of the Christian faith is this idea of unconditional love and acceptance. Um, there's, Sorry, there's a lot of unconditional you. love to be found in the Bible and that's preached. Oh, um, I don't know why I'm losing. I've never had reception <laughs> issues before. I'm Wi-Fi and see if, uh, the 5G is enough. <laughs> um, can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, okay. yeah. And we're going to want to wrap this up too in a few minutes, but yeah, yeah. Let's just, yeah. yeah. Okay. Finish off what you were saying there. Yeah. Um, basically just that I think, uh, the reason a lot of people come to Christianity is because it's where they find unconditional love. It's where they find mm. a feeling of redemption and forgiveness from their sins. It's where they find a sense of purpose and wholeness and forgiveness and peace. And I think that those are, 
it's totally understandable to me why a lot of people um, become born again Christians um, and and are sold on the idea of unconditional love and eternal love and heaven and acceptance. Um, it's 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 never fails to fascinate me how other people have the opposite experience within Christianity, even within the same churches. Someone who converts to Christianity and joins one church will have another member who was raised in that church, had an opposite experience and deconverts from Christianity and finds those things elsewhere. Um, I think it's just a testament to the subjectivity of experience more than it is any doctrine in mm. and of itself. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And uh, before I uh, ask you my last question, I'm just going to say this too for anybody listening right now. If they have a question or if, if there's a point they want to make, you know, feel free to, to chime in and we can include that before we wrap this up. But the last question for you is, and you've, you've, you've kind of indirectly answered this already, but after leaving Christianity, like, how do you find purpose in your life? How do you find spiritual purpose in your life? And I'm sure psychedelics are part of that or mindfulness meditation or nature. I'm curious, what is that anchor in your life? Like when, when things are really tough, let's say, when Alice is not having a good day, <laughs> when, when, you're, when you're really suffering, what, where, where do you go to for relief or for hope or for that shining light in your life? It, it, you know, if you have one, perhaps you haven't found one, I don't know, but I'm curious what your experience is. For me, it's people first. It's my loved ones, first and foremost, um, even as a Christian, it was still people. It was people that I would turn to for prayer, people that I would turn to to share my struggles and my needs and my hurts, you know, and they would pray for me. And now I look at that as like, you know, because I don't believe in God anymore, but I still find so much love and catharsis from their prayers because they were, I think now that it was their own love for me that made them say the loving, kind, reassuring things that they did. And they did it through the lens of our shared faith, which would be like, God, please let Alice know how much you appreciate her and bless her and reward her faith and give her the desires of her heart. And thank you so much for Alice's kindness and blah, blah, blah. I now see that as like, that was just how they saw me because they loved me the way I saw them and loved them. I don't think God had anything to do with it um, by, again, by our Christian definition of God. Um, so now that's still what I do when I'm going through a hard time, you know, I can talk to my boyfriend or I can call my mom or I can get together with some friends. And if it's something that I don't want to talk about with anyone yet, um, I find that through my senses. I find that through, I'm going to, if Alice is having a hard day, I'm going to treat myself to a stuffed crust pizza and I'm going to have cuddles with my cat and I'm just going <laughs> to zone out and watch a really cool documentary that's going to blow my mind and please my senses. Um, I'm going to go for a hike, you know, and just like lay on a rock in the sun like a lizard and just like enjoy it and be lazy, you know, and like another thing for me too, um, as a Christian, I was taught to deny the pleasures of the flesh. Um, I was told that, uh, you know, our physical pleasure is is dangerous because it, it can lead us away from God and the more spiritual abstract pursuits that we should be focused on. It's a slippery slope to hedonism. And now I'm a full on hedonist. Um, it is the pleasures of my flesh that give me a sense of anchoredness and meaning and purpose when life is feeling overwhelming and awry. It's the simplicity of sitting on the sand in the beach and feeling the grains beneath my toes and smelling mm. the salty air. It's completely a physically immersive experience that gives me yeah. what some call spiritual transcendence. I get it through my body. I get it through my flesh. I get it through my senses. 
I get it through human connection. I get it through sex. Yes. I get it through food. I get it through mushrooms. I get it through my body. <laughs> it has nothing to do with my soul or my spirit or whatever these abstract concepts are. It is purely physical to me. So that would be my answer to that. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's a really powerful answer. Re really eloquently said, I have to say. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> and, and I mean, I mean, again, like I was saying earlier, if if you were talking to Sadhguru or some Advaita Vedanta guru or some Buddhist and what you just what mm -hmm. you just described right there, they, they would be like, yeah, you got it. Yeah. Welcome to the club, girl. Come on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Join us. <laughs> That I mean the you know especially the you know the physical part and I mean yeah. the I mean what, the only issue somebody somebody of that faith might have um, is like the thing about sex I mean I I, I hear what part. you're saying but yeah no no I, I hear what you're saying but also it, it is a it is of transient nature right it's not yeah um, something you can just do all the time right it it eventually passes and, and that's ultimately yeah. one of the the uh, profound insights within Eastern faiths is of that that pure consciousness that you know if you want to call it god or brahman that's available to you in every moment right and that, that and that can be like you said at the beach uh feeling the grains of sand beneath your feet and looking at the the sweeping blue panorama in the sky and these beautiful clouds and see people mm -hmm. around you like within the advaita vedanta context you know you know that is god you got it alice you're there <laughs> you're experiencing God, that that is the the essence of spirituality, um, and and f from a Buddhist perspective as well. Um, but but uh, you know, so so what you're saying there would align with other spiritual faiths, but not the Western, you know, at least the popular Western form. You know, that would be a little contrarian, you might say, at least or at most, um, it mm. would just be poor, horribly wrong. But I mean. I, I could see an Orthodox Christian appreciate what you're saying much more than an, an evangelical Christian, perhaps. Mm. Perhaps you might be able to say that. Sure. I think, I think there's plenty. Well, I, yeah, it's, it's, I think that there would be some that an evangelical of my kind that would totally agree with me and others that would agree with me up to a certain point. Like, for instance, like, yeah. like I was raised to believe that God created everything in nature. And of course he made it beautiful. He didn't have to, but he made sunsets and beaches beautiful uh, just for no other reason that he loved us and wanted us to enjoy it. Um, so there's definitely elements within the evangelical Christian faith that would still recognize the enjoyment of nature through one's senses as the experience of God. Um, but for me, it's like, I can still clearly experience that without the faith in God. So for me, it becomes, it's, it's, it's still just my body. It's still just nature. I don't have to believe in an, in an author of it mm -hmm. or like a reason for it in order to fully immerse myself in the sheer pleasure of the experience. Um, and where they would disagree with me in is sensual pleasure, um, through drink or through drugs or through sex. Um, God can be found in sex, but only in a heterosexual marriage where I, like God planned according to the Bible. And so, but I've, mm -hmm. I mean, take my word, I've found transcendence having unmarried sex and plenty of it. So it's like, I don't think <laughs> I, again, I don't need that belief system to reap the benefits of what I'm finding, uh, where I'm finding what, um, you know, some other people might call God, but where my Christians would have called Satan. Um, I'm finding me is how I look at it. And maybe that goes in line with, with, you know, the people who'd say that I am God. Um, but for me, 
my body is God, then if that's how I'm experiencing awe, peace Mm -hmm. and love, and it's through my body and other people's bodies and our shared experiences, I'm, if that's God, cool. Then I believe in God, but I wouldn't use that. I still wouldn't use that verbiage just because of what it symbolizes to so many other people. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, what it means in the Western context, right? If you go to Eastern India and you say Brahmin, that's just a different connotation, right? You, you know, you, in, in the Christian context, you wouldn't just go up to somebody and be like, I see God in you right now. Yeah. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. Unless, you're, unless you're talking to a pastor or a priest, you might be able to get away with that. But generally, that's not people are going to think you're 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 high on coke or something or you're schizophrenic. <laughs> but but if you go to but if you go to eastern India and you say, oh, I, I realize uh, that the spirit of God is filled in, is, is filled with me right now or I see God in you right now and it's beautiful. They'd be like, thank you so much that's that's a really sincere compliment mm. because just their their understanding of god is much more uh, sweeping universal and kind of unitary in that it's it's everywhere right well, it's just it's just like oxygen <laughs> yes i will say that that verbiage i see god in you right now was very common in my christian circles um but i, mm. and I think that verbiage is important i see god in you as opposed to you are god I see that you are God. Um, that might be where the where the hairs split, you know, if we were going to get semantic-y. But, like, in my Christian yes. circles, there were plenty of times, not just among pastors, but, like, even just friend to friend, like, you are so filled with the love of God right now, and it's beautiful, and you're such an open channel of God's love and mercy or whatever it is. Um, that was very common, but never would you say, never would I turn to my friend Sarah and be like, you are God right now. Um, or that I yeah. am God, that would have been harshly condemned, AKA prayed for. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and I mean, idolatry. Like, yeah. But, but, but of course, if you said to somebody who's non-Christian, I see the spirit of God in you right now, you're filled with God's love, right? That would be heretical, right? Yeah. To a, if, if a Christian said that to a non-Christian, that would yeah. either be heretical or it would be this person doesn't even know it yet, but God's using them. Because there's plenty of characters in the Bible who were not God believers or Christians that eventually became such, like the Apostle Paul. He started off as Saul, who mm-hmm. was like persecuting Christians, and still God was moving through him, even though he didn't know it, and had this big conversion moment on a road. And then now he then he became Paul and is like the author of half the New Testament. So Um, There are definitely instances where, like, God could still be working through someone. Like, a lot of evangelicals thought that about Donald Trump. I remember when Trump was running for president, a lot of Christians were like, how? Like, he's a fornicator. He's this, that, and the other thing. And, and, like, all of these things. Like, how? And people would be like, oh, but remember the story of Saul. You know, like, God could be using Donald Trump the same way. And Donald (laughs) doesn't know it yet. And, you know, we're going to have this prayer team. and Probably not. Probably not. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I don't know. I point 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 is it's heretical to a certain point, but there would still be um there still would be exceptional instances. Uh it would really probably just depend on the individuals involved. Um but mm-hmm. but yeah, like if you said you found God in a Hindu temple, that would be looked upon in high suspicion of like, no, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. What you felt was Satan pretending to be God because he's trying to lure you away. That's how that would be the more common right. mindset. Yeah, and I, yeah, and I find that to be so toxic and discriminatory Agreed. and preposterous and narrow-minded. You know, and, agree. You know, converse, <laughs> c- conversely, the, the the Hindu who's 
who who I might say is is a, you know reading the essentials of, of Hinduism, who's not perverting the theology. He he would look at somebody else who says they found God within a church and be like, yeah, I believe, yeah, that's beautiful. You know, good yeah. for you. That that's amazing, and I and I believe you because God yeah. is God is everywhere, available in different channels, and uh, you know, like you were saying, you know, you can say in a Christian circle that yeah i you know i feel the i see the spirit of god within you but saying that you are god or i am god um you know you can't say that yeah you can't say that you can't say that in a you can't say that in the hindu context right if you this is a point alan watts has made before of like um in a uh, in a christian context if you say if you wake up and say i'm god people throw you in the loony bin you're you know you're a little cocoa right mm-hmm. but <laughs> if, if, if you're a hindu and you wake up and you say oh Oh, I'm God. People around you are going to be like, "Oh, finally, you found out. Good job. It took you long enough." <laughs> oh, wow. I, I was like, Alan Watts frequently uses that example in his uh, recordings. It, it's hilarious to me, but that, but it's true. Um, but, but of course, the 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 point there to make is when, when if a Hindu says, "Oh, I'm God," he he doesn't mean like I am like some big authority right now that can now get away with anything. That that doesn't mean that he can do heinous acts or that suddenly he's superior in any way. That, mm-hmm. That's not what that means, right? And, you know, if, mm-hmm. if you told that story to a Christian, they'd be like, oh, that's that's super dangerous that people can just wake up and just say they're God. Like, well, like oh, that's horrible. That's That could be perverted so easily. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, and, and it has been historically and even um, contemporarily, there was one uh, guru, I was talking to my friend Joe uh, about this in a phone call before this conversation, there was this one guru, um, I think his name was Baba Ramdev, and uh, he, you know, he was channelizing this divine power, and he was he raped countless women in his ashram, and women would come mm. and, you know, perform oral sex on him because he was channeling Brahman mm. through his semen. <laughs> and, of course you know, he, he was. Yeah, yeah, of course he was, yeah. Um, but, you know, he, he's serving life in prison now, thankfully, but... You know, mm-hmm. you know, these kind of things with, with anything, you know, something can be abused. It can yeah. be perverted and it can be distorted. So that that's a danger you run with everything. Yeah. But I, 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 I do find that um, universal belief to be more and more where I'm heading towards and where I'm aligning with just a much more compassionate and broad sweeping kind of view that accounts for the diversity within the, the rainforest of religions you know so, you know there could be a ladybug there could be uh, a zebra there could be a, a snake you know it could all be looking very very different but if, mm-hmm. uh, if we're all made out of atoms if we're all eating the same food if we're all feeling you know if, if love and compassion and unity and then evil and crime and sin if all if all these things are universal if we're all made of the same stuff and we're mm-hmm. all you know, eating eating the same stuff and feeling the same stuff and essentially are the same biological organism, notwithstanding, mm-hmm. you know, all, all sorts of other, you know, racial differences and, you know, all, all the biological diversity, putting that aside, if we're all essentially getting food from the same source and feeling the same things, no matter if we're living in, in Ohio, if we're living somewhere in Afghanistan or Zimbabwe, if, if we can feel these universal things, is there not something universal about God, about the universe, that we shouldn't be so obsessively dividing people on and saying we're right and you're wrong, and oh maybe this is right and this is wrong, and everybody has their fanatical declarative 
defense of their own religion and, mm-hmm. and they think other people are wrong. But I, I think there, there's something universal that we need to be much more uh, in tune with. That's my rant like of the that. day. I like it. I love it. It's beautiful. <laughs> thank you for sharing you. that. <laughs> yeah, of course. And thank you for being here. It's been great talking to you. Yes, you too. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I, I, I didn't realize how, 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 how long we've been going at it. I have lunch waiting for me now. But, um, but yeah, thank you so me too. much. This was, <laughs> yes, yeah. this was such a, such a pleasure, as always, talking with you. And thank you to, to everyone listening. Um, yeah, and, and uh, I'd love to do this again. Yeah, yeah. And I'll, I'll just quickly say to you, my friend uh, Parker, who's listening to this, he says he's very much related to you and says you're a fantastic human being who, Aww. you know, beautifully articulated some of these things that people like himself within the Christian faith are struggling with. So he deeply appreciates you for coming on and expressing these things. So credit to you. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you found it helpful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, we'll we'll have to have you on at some point to talk all about mystical experience, which we already kind of got into, but I think just a conversation dedicated to that topic, I think oh, yes. would be There's really interesting. To and, <laughs> and, and of course, talking about your other experiences on DMT, mushrooms, ayahuasca, all those things, that'll be another interesting conversation. Yes, so, I'm looking forward to it. Definitely. Well, good, good talking to you. Have a good lunch. And uh, people can later find this podcast on Spotify, Apple, and they can, can listen to it at whatever point. So um, hopefully people tune in and uh, take a lot of value from your, your uh, profound and experienced perspective. Oh, thank you. I hope so too. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right, Have a good thank day. you so much. You too. Bye. Bye-bye.